We make our way to Acts chapter 3. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 4 today, but just noting 3 as we begin. Let's just seek briefly, again, the Lord's aid as we look into His Word. We ask that You would, by Your Spirit, teach us the truth of this passage in light of the series in which we find ourselves, Lord. We know that You are not bound to any human series of sermons, that there is a text here that stands on its own, but I pray that You'd help us to integrate it rightly with our search to understand the significance of the city and the theology of Scripture and in the endeavors that we put forward to stand for your truth and be faithful as your followers in this world. We have a passage before us today that brings conviction that is awesome in so many respects as we look to your word and the example of those that have gone before us. We know that they, like us, were sinners. And yet we praise You for what they did in courage and in faith as they relied upon the Spirit of God. And I pray that we now would rely upon the Spirit of God, perhaps in somewhat of a different way, but that we would be open to Your teaching and to Your conviction and instruction. Lord, this church endures many long messages and teachings of the Word But I pray, God, that you would allow us to engage and to continue to learn the discipline to listen in a world where we just don't have to listen much anymore. But I pray that we would always come with earnest heart to hear your word and to understand it better and to give ourselves to this discipline that we might grow and mature in the faith. And for those who know not Christ, again, we pray in their behalf that you'd open their eyes to the truth of Christ crucified and risen and coming again. As we have sung of that, as we have sung of His coming and we have sung of His return, we pray now that you'll find us faithful in this time together. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Some years ago we took a mission trip, a team, to Alaska. One evening we journeyed out of Fairbanks to a Christian camp several hours away we stopped along the way at a scenic overlook like none we had ever seen before. The hour was late, and yet the scene was illumined by the midnight sun of an Alaskan summer. And as far as the eye could see in the 180 degrees in front of us, all across the stretch, we were very high in elevation, as far as you could see, there was just untouched splendor. Vast stretches of densely forested hills rippled across the landscape. And it was the rivers and the streams that stood out. They, they almost glowed as if molten, silver in that late sun. The vast canvas of sky above was dotted with clouds. But what I think made that scene so mesmerizing for us is that we were seeing as much territory as the human eye could see and there was no sign of people anywhere. There was not a single building. There was not a car. There was not a road. There was not an airplane across the sky. There were no towers. There was nothing but pristine wilderness. And it was beautiful. 
it was so beautiful, it didn't look real. It almost just looked like a painting standing there in front of you. There was just this untouched splendor as you took this scene in. As God's people, there should be no one on the planet that would more appreciate that scene than us. Than the people of God who can say, I know the Creator of this splendor. I have a living, vibrant relationship with the One who painted this. And put it out here for us to enjoy. And yet, I would also argue that what we were doing there on that trip and what we do as God's people throughout the days of our life, that there's more beauty out there in this world than even that scene. If you are a growing follower of Jesus Christ, there is a greater attraction to the beauty of the city. If you've been born again, your heart is drawn to that beauty. I don't mean that we necessarily favor urban life over rural life or think that skyscrapers are as beautiful as mountains. That's not what I'm saying. But when we grasp the beauty of what the risen Christ is doing to save a people for His name, we will value the wonder and the strategic importance of places where there are people. We will see the beauty of creatures made in God's image and we will see the beauty of the glory of Jesus Christ being proclaimed and announced there in those messy places where there are so many creatures twisted and broken and in darkness. We will rejoice in the capacities of the city to spread the beauty of Christ crucified and risen in this worldwide gospel endeavor. The wilderness is a place to visit. It's a place to rejoice in the beauties of God. It is a place to refresh and contemplate those glories. But it's in the city. For those of us who are here now, for those of us who know Christ, it is in the city, the urban centers where people converge. That is where the cause of Christ will always bring us back and propel us. We won't just simply look for what is most pleasing to the eye, but we will look to the creatures made in the image of God and where they congregate and consider the glories of bringing the Gospel there and seeing lives change. That's pure beauty. A life transformed by Jesus Christ. A sinner broken and in darkness taken by Him and remade and remolded. That is beauty. Now I know that's going to be harder on Monday morning when you're sitting on the freeway trying to get into work. And all these people are in the way. We get in the way. There's ugliness that's there. There's murder in cities. There's crimes of all sorts in cities. And people get in the way. But let's remember the project. The project is not just to take in the beauty that we see in the created order, but to look to those made in the image of God and the mission to take the message to them. We realize it's a dirty story. It's a bloody, dark story sometimes. And we left it off there last week as we consider the Jesus' lamentation over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
I wanted to gather you under my wings. I wanted to bring you into the light of the gospel, but you would not. And the glory has come back to the temple that once left and in the person of Jesus Christ, but He is rejected. He is crucified in the city of Jerusalem. Those authorities congregated there. He spent much of His ministry in places where they weren't congregated. He had the freedom there to speak and to teach and to perform the miracles demonstrating who He was. He spent much of His time away from there. But coming back to that city and knowing that this was ground zero of God's saving purposes, Jesus is crucified in the city. Jerusalem rejects Him. Jesus, we know, rises from the dead. And He ascends into heaven. Before He does in this book of Acts, He says, go into the city and wait for power to come. I will pour out My Spirit upon you. And then you will be My witnesses to the ends of the earth. The glory has left the temple, but the glory is now in His people and it will spread to the nations through their witness. And so in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit is poured out by the risen Christ. And what do people do? They begin to speak in tongues they've not studied. I think that means they speak in languages they're going to be speaking throughout the world in the name of Christ to proclaim His salvation. How does that hit us in our study of the city? Remember Babel? In judgment scattered. In judgment languages confused. Now here in Acts 2, languages being brought. The, the, the difficulties of understanding being removed. And the people being scattered again, not in judgment, but now with the glorious gospel of Christ. So much is going on here. So much is happening. And in the midst of all of this, a simple scene. A simple scene, Acts chapter 3. The apostles of Jesus, Peter and John, just go to the temple to pray. Good Jewish people did all the time in Jerusalem. But there's a man there who's paralyzed from birth. He's never walked. And he looks to them and seeks a, a gift that would sustain him. There's no insurance policies there in that day as we would understand them. And he is dependent upon the gifts of those who come to the temple. And he just asks if they would contribute to his difficulty, to his livelihood as a paralyzed man. He's been in this condition for over 40 years. Peter says, I don't have money to give you. I'm sure his heart probably sunk just a little bit at that moment to hear that. Then he said, but I've got something better. He grabs him by the right hand and he lifts him up and the man's legs work. He is delivered from this paralysis. There is a miraculous healing that takes place and he doesn't spend now the next months learning to walk as a 40-something year old man. He walks, he leaps, he praises God. Everyone knew this man. He had his station there. They knew that he had been in this condition from birth. And they knew that he was a man now filled with joy. Peter takes this opportunity to, pro to proclaim salvation in Christ in chapter 3 and verse 15. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Note that connection. You killed him, God raised him. It just continues to repeat throughout the book of Acts. To this we are witnesses. And His name, by faith in His name, 
has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Notice that, this perfect health, this complete healing in the presence of everyone. Notice the emphasis here on the name. It is in the name of Jesus that this healing takes place. Let's hang on to that thought as we move into chapter 4, where there is great emphasis upon this name, upon His authority. The city of Jerusalem has rejected Jesus, but His name will explode now from this city to the cities of the ancient world. And we are looking just at the first rumblings of that here in Acts 4. We notice, first of all, the disciples are arrested for proclaiming Jesus' name. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, as they were speaking to the people and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. They set upon them. This kind of appear all of a sudden. And they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So Peter and John are teaching the people one of those pillared alcoves of the temple complex. They're proclaiming the lordship of Jesus and the power of the resurrection. They're speaking to the people whose attention has been riveted now by this healing. And they're showing up are these officials of the temple. They're decked out in their fancy robes and turbans and they are angry. And that, of course, spells trouble for Peter and John. The captain of the temple is the chief magistrate in charge of the temple police. And he has, when it comes to authority, particularly here at the temple, there's only one person higher, and that's the high priest. The Romans had pretty much turned over everything to the Jews here. They couldn't kill people unless they invaded the temple uh, complex itself, but they, they couldn't execute. But other than that, they were the authority here. So he's, the, the apostles are here seeing at the side, the back of their gathering, these officials show up who have absolute power in this area. Let me just also say and remind us as we're seeing this, their hands are still dripping with the blood of Jesus. These are the same people that put him to death. Now they've just showed up at your church service. Here they are. The city of man is raging against the city of God. Verse 3. Verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. That is, Peter and John are not formally trained rabbis. They've not applied for permission to teach here. And so they're put in hold for the night until matters can be sorted out by the Sanhedrin. The city of man roars in opposition to the name of Jesus proclaimed by these untrained, unwelcomed Galilean fishermen. And we're reminded... As we know that Satan's people can jail those who preach the gospel. It's not hard. We don't carry weapons. We do not resist arrest. You can put us in custody, but you cannot chain the gospel. Verse 4. What an interesting place to insert this. They're put in hold for the night. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Much was happening in Jerusalem. Much was happening in the 
death and resurrection of Christ. And there are people who are listening. Their ears are opened by these events. And a softness comes by the Spirit of God and open eyes to embrace Christ. And many are responding, though the offspring of Satan rage. God's Word about Jesus' winning hearts. There was no one on the face of the earth more opposed to Jesus than these officials. And that leads to the second stream here of thought. And that's that the disciples are now interrogated and, pro- and proclaim Jesus' name again. They're interrogated beginning in verse 5. On the next day the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. A lot of intrigue there that we won't take time to focus on, but these were the, the leaders. These are the ones with power. And they bring them before uh, these officials. And when they had, verse 7, when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Let's get into the scene here. There's 71 members of the Sanhedrin. The high priest seated in the middle and all of these 71 in a semicircle. These are the individuals that might be equated in our mind and our way of thinking to the Senate and the Supreme Court. They're everything. These are the power brokers of Israel seated in a semicircle and there's Peter and John and probably this healed man, he's not stated here but he is later, all standing there, fresh out of a night in jail. I didn't get a shower. He probably didn't sleep very well, and they're probably blinking as they come and stand before these powerful individuals in Israel. And they want to know one thing. By what name did you do this? Do they know? Are they inquiring here to gain information? Clearly not. What does verse 2 say? They know. They know by what name. That's what's angered them and what's led to the imprisonment. They know what name. What they're seeking to do is establish a position in the trial. So it's by the name of Jesus. This one who was executed because he was guilty of high crimes against God and our nation. That's the one whose name you're speaking. Is that true? And of course it's confirmed. Verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. Filled with the Spirit. If it wasn't for that, they'd crumble in fear. But empowered by the Spirit of God, they witness the name of Christ. Now, Peter, in a sense, subtly chides them. I mean, really, our only crime here, people, is that we've healed a man. But if you need to know, if you really want to know, if you want us to establish the name by which He has been healed, it is indeed this Jesus Christ, the One you crucified and God raised. Think about that a while. You killed him. And after you executed him, God brought him back to life. 
Now let me spell out the implications of this equation. You killed him, God raised him. This means, verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That was a bombshell. They knew their scriptures. They knew the Hebrew Bible. They knew, this is a quotation from Psalm 118, they knew this to be, in their own tradition, a messianic psalm. The stone, the picture is, that the builders set aside as being useless, God took and made the most important stone in the building. This is now fulfilled in you. You're the ones who kicked the stone. You're the ones who marked it and said worthless. You're the ones who killed the cornerstone. But God has raised Him from the dead and Jesus Christ is that cornerstone. And you are resisting God. You're fulfilling this prophecy. He is that stone and you have stumbled over Him. He continues this proclamation of, the, of Messiah in verse 12 as he, here at least in the text, comes to the conclusion. Verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here in the city, hear the message, hear the beauty. One name under heaven by which we must be saved. The apostolic message was always clear. One Savior, only one Savior, for everyone, Jesus. Every other name proposed by any other voice announces a false Savior and an empty message. There are other religious leaders who teach. There are other religious books that teach. But there is only one God and only one way to Him, and that is on His terms. And God reveals that there is only one mediator who suffered the death penalty of our sin, who thus satisfies the wrath of God against sinners, and who conquered death by resurrection. That is entirely exclusive. And the reception of Christ as the only Savior is an exclusive reception because what He did was exclusive. If there is only one God, we must go to that one God and discern the means to approach His presence as sinners. And no one else has done this. No one has died in the place of sinners, in sinless perfection, taking their sin, and all of it being demonstrated as God's act by His resurrection. We note the emphasis again on the name. This reminds us that salvation is a relationship with Jesus. It's not a reward for good works. The forgiveness of sin is not based on mere agreement with certain principles. So it's not you performing certain deeds and it's not you even agreeing with certain ideas to be true. Salvation is based on that, of course, on the truth claims of Christ, but it is based in a relationship with Jesus. Salvation is found, may we never forget it, in a person, in a relationship with Christ entered by trust in His death and resurrection. So we must know the facts of what God has revealed. That is part of our salvation, but that doesn't save us. 
that gives us the knowledge to act in faith to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ on the basis of what He's done. Now you can be sure here that Peter is not striving to be liked. He's not seeking to gain the Sanhedrin's favor when he says there is one way of salvation and it's not your way. It's not what you teach. It's not what you believe. It is the Jesus of Nazareth whom you crucified. There's really little way to offend them any more thoroughly. The issue is, is it true? That's always the issue. Exclusive messages in the realm of religion are always offensive and no message is more exclusive than that of Jesus Christ. I wrote an article in the local paper some years ago and I spoke of these exclusive claims of Jesus. I thought I was kind of fairly gentle about it, but uh, apparently not everyone took it that way. A reader wrote me a letter of response, described my witness for Christ in the local paper with these words, and I quote, he described my words as closed-minded, sad, uncompassionate, ignorant, closed-minded, apparently there's twice helps there, I don't know, but promoting feelings of hate and superiority, unnecessary, uneducated, promoting thoughts of fear and hate for others, creating violence and conflict in a world in need of forgiveness and love. And I thought, wow, I I think this guy needs to calm down a little bit. I'm the source of conflict in the world. My little article, my little person. And then I thought, you know what? Actually, he has it exactly right. From his angle... He's getting it. Now, I would obviously absolutely reject the idea that I'm striving to cause any conflict in the world as such. But this is how the city of man responds when they really get it and reject it. When you get it and you reject it, you crucify him. It's not enough to just say to each his own, that Savior must die. And perhaps a lot of times the problem where we do not speak clearly enough, people can smooth over and put Jesus on the shelf of idols along with their other idols. Jesus is an iconoclast. He comes into your room with the shelf of idols and he knocks it over. He must. Because he loves you and he knows the way to God and he's not going to say anything else. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The message is starting out. These early rumblings, it's beginning to be proclaimed here in Jerusalem. Well, it's a powerful speech by uneducated fishermen with astonished composure before the Sanhedrin, and it puts them on their heels. So in the next segment of the narrative, we see the authorities forbid the proclamation of Jesus' name, but to utterly no avail. Verse 13, 
Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Yes, they'd been with Jesus a lot. And yes, they'd been with Jesus a lot more recently than these guys wanted to admit. The uh, Sadducees particularly, there is no resurrection. It's not possible. These men had been with the resurrected Christ for some time. But the point is that like their master, they spoke with authority, with bold assurance that came from the Holy Spirit. They should have been shaking with fear, the Sanhedrin. But they stood here, these men, with confidence. The Sanhedrin thought that Peter and John should be shaking with fear. But they stood unintimidated. They noted it. They saw it. Back to the trouble at hand, verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. It would be hilarious if it wasn't so pathetic. The guy's standing right there. They're staring at God's power and they refuse to admit it. It reminds us, just a quick sideline as we think about miracles, Let's always remember that miracles by themselves can never soften a hard heart. No miracle has ever converted someone other than the miracle of the resurrection and the new birth. But just viewing a miracle cannot soften a hard heart by itself. The miraculous healings of Jesus and the apostles also, let's also note, were total. They were undeniable. They were irrefutable, even by the avowed enemies of Christ. No one questioned this miracle because no one could. The nature of New Testament miracles were of such a species that the enemies of Christ never denied them. You can read Roman authors today who speak about Christ and Jewish authors who spoke about Him in that day. They don't deny it. They attribute His power to Satan. They refuse to follow the implications of His power. They even tried to reverse at least one miracle when He raised Lazarus from the dead and they tried to put Him back to death. They didn't deny that they happened because they couldn't. They were irrefutable miracles. But back to the line. Knowing this, verse 15... When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, verse 16, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, notice their attempt, we don't want it to spread, we're going to act, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in His name. The city of man rages against Messiah. It is the name that they fear. It is the name that they oppose. And they are saying, speak no more of Him. That's their position. So verse 18, the authorities render judgment then, calling them back in. Verse 18, they call them, charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's the end of it. All these proud leaders stand on the tracks of history trying to stop 
a speeding locomotive with their puffed up chests is what they're doing. They could just as well have commanded the sun to extinguish itself. They seek to squelch the authority. They seek to squelch the power of the reigning Christ. They seek to silence His witness. But Peter and John set the record straight. Verses 19 and 20. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It is never safe to oppose God and we won't do it. With integrity, they don't just plan to disobey the order. They tell them they plan to disobey the order. Their orders come from a higher throne than the Sanhedrin. And they will obey God first. The Sanhedrin may seek to intimidate them, but Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus healed this man born lame. They're going to stick with Jesus. The authorities rage then in verses 21 and 22, but to no avail. When they had verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. And the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Again, no one could miss the fact of what had happened. It was confirmable by all. This man being the age that he was. So the crowd, as with Jesus, performs something of a service of protection for the apostles. So the Sanhedrin will, for now, simply issue a warning, hoping that the disciples of Jesus will come to their senses. What they do is they come to God's throne. And just to keep in parallel with the, the flow of the narrative, but I think, too, theologically we can say this, not just to keep a parallel outline here, but the disciples pray in Jesus' name. It's in the authority of Jesus that they now pray. It's in the authority of Christ that they now come to Him and seek Him for strength. The first segment of this prayer, beginning at verse 23, we see them exalting in the sovereign purposes of God and how instructive this is. Talk about it later this afternoon. How instructive this is to us. They see the sovereign purposes of God and they come to Him in prayer as they, as they announce and exalt in that sovereignty. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Sovereign Lord, they serve the Creator of all things. They serve the one true and living God. And so they will not curl up in a ball in fear, but they will pray. As representatives of the city of God, they are very aware of the violent opposition that comes from the city of man. And they realize this entire ordeal is about Jesus. They get it right. It's not about them. It's not about their safety. It's not about how could our rights be violated this way, if that was an argument. But it's about Jesus. It's about the risen Christ. And we witness for Him. They saw it rightly. As representatives of the city of God, they're very aware of this violent opposition, but they know in the name of Jesus that they, they operate, they function, they speak. It's the sovereign Lord whose purposes they serve. And so they appeal to the throne of the sovereign Lord. 
Verse 25, Who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. Quoting here Psalm 2, The raging city of man, raging against the Lord. This insanity played out, in fact, right here in the city of Jerusalem, the place God had chosen as the significant city to work out His salvation. What happened? Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever Your hand and Your plan had predestined to take place. The Jewish authorities and the Roman governors tried and executed Jesus. In doing this, they committed the most outrageous sin in history. But the disciples describe that sin as accomplishing all that God predestined to take place. Before evil was... God knew this course. These evil men were held accountable for their crimes, but they would have been stopped dead in their tracks had their evil acts not ultimately accomplished the good that God intended. And that good is the death of His Son to pay the penalty of your sin and mine. Nothing happens in this world outside God's ultimate and perfect design. Nothing happens in this world outside of God's perfect will and design. And I know what I'm saying. I know what that means. We do not have the time to work this point further, but cling to that truth. The suffering that some endure in this world is very, very deep. But if the worst of all sins was part of the sovereign plan of God, there is nothing that falls outside that parameter. Cling to it. We can't work it out today. We won't work it out for the rest of our lives but cling to it because the alternative leaves you in a world of chaos and insanity. And the alternative leaves you in a place with God where your faith will continue to weaken. And if not now, in youth, in old age, there will be a day when you say, I don't get God. And I'm tired of trying. Cling to it. They killed Jesus doing whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Cling to that. Meditate on it. Think on it for the rest of your life. We'll never in this life understand all that God permits sinners to do or understand all that He's permitted sinners to do to us. And the sins that they commit are real sins and they will be judged by God and they are not authored by in the sense of initiated by 
or the responsibility of the Sovereign Lord. But never, ever, ever is God at a loss, wringing His hands in despair. Never. Our Sovereign God works all things together for our ultimate and eternal good, while our faith will never fully grasp the beauty of that. May we keep clinging to it. And coming to it. Exhibit 1 is the sinless Messiah tortured and unjustly executed for our forgiveness and salvation according to the predestined plan of God. If God orchestrated that sin for our good, He will do the same with the lesser crimes committed against us. He will. In time, we'll get it. I mean, they're facing a heap of trouble here. Their Savior, their Rabbi, the one that they had come to trust was gone. Now they're understanding the beauty of that departure and the good of it and their role in it. But Jesus is gone and they are going to suffer. They have suffered and it's going to get a lot worse. They go to the throne of the sovereign God for aid. And the prayer shifts at verse 29 to one more focus, and that is petition now. Petitioning the Lord for power against the darkness. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. What beauty is in that? Look at their threats and send a lightning bolt and take them out. Is what we naturally want to pray here. Bring them down. It's not what they pray. Notice their threats and grant us the ability to boldly keep witnessing Christ. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, signs like the healing of this man, indicating to all unimpeachable evidence of the power of the risen Christ. And when they had prayed, verse 31, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. What beauty is here? They don't ask for deliverance. They don't even ask for protection. They ask for boldness and power to proclaim the name of Jesus on His authority to the ends of the earth. And God answers that noble prayer in no uncertain terms. Their prayer is rooted in biblical reality. It is rooted in an understanding of the sovereignty of God. They knew the risen Christ. They saw their high calling to speak the message of salvation in His name. What mattered to them was what mattered to God, and God answered this prayer. He shook the place, evidencing His answer. Just a few thoughts as we collect them on the basis of this narrative and in light of the series that we are pursuing here through the end of the month. We have the two cities. We see here man's city raging against the authority of Christ and thus raging against His followers. We have God's city exulting in the sovereignty of God and willing to endure rejection and even physical harm in order to proclaim the glorious message of Christ. And on the matter of the glory of God, remember Deuteronomy 12, I will put my name there. 
Second Chronicles 7, the glory fills the temple there in Jerusalem. Ezekiel 11, the glory leaves the temple. John 1, the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ returns to the temple, but again rejected, it leaves. Matthew chapter 24. Now Acts chapter 4, this is beauty. This glory is going to now explode outward. This is, Acts 2 is the big bang. Everything is going to go from here to the cities of the earth, proclaiming Jesus crucified and risen. Will it be stopped? Satan throws his heavy punch right here against the followers of Christ. Circle them with the Sanhedrin. Tell them to stop speaking. Crush this right here and right now. Their Savior's dead. They're going to be dead. Let them know that and stop the mission here. And we see this ragged fisherman and his friend and a healed man who's got utterly no clout in that society, standing before this august circle and saying, we won't stop. We won't stop. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the Lord of this room where you sit, Sanhedrin, and we will proclaim His name. And here we are. We gather on this Lord's Day as a testimony to the fact that the message has gone to the nations. It's reached us here so far away. And as the book of Acts develops, we see this movement. The Apostle Paul, particularly in his strategy of evangelizing key urban centers, he is in Antioch, he is in Ephesus, he is in Corinth, he is in Athens, he is in Rome. And there is no question why he's targeting these cities when we study their histories. Cities are not special because of the high-rises and the pooled talent and energy. Cities are special in Christ's kingdom because they are places that are filled with lost souls. They're filled with people Jesus died to save. And they're beautiful to us then because they're places where we can roam about and find His lost sheep. And when there is response to the gospel, there is exquisite beauty. Like nothing in compare in this world. Creatures made in God's image hear the message of Christ crucified and risen and they respond in faith. Our task is not to create then Christian cultures to overwhelm the structures of the city because the city is special, but to go to every nation and people group in the world armed with the authority of Jesus to proclaim His name in whatever culture, whatever marketplace, whatever language, whatever terrain we find ourselves. And to say, with the martyrs of the ages, we won't stop. We don't bring... Weapons for defense. We don't resist arrest. We might avoid it. But we don't resist it. But with open arms we say, come to Christ. And we hear Jesus' lamentation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as the city is lost. 
but the city was lost in the plan of the sovereign God who predestined all of these events. It was lost in the strategy of it that the gospel might flow to the cities of the world. If the cities aren't going to come to Jerusalem, then the believers of Christ are going to go to the cities. And they're going to reach people in those population centers so that from those centers the gospel can spread out further beyond. Our particular phase of the mission is this. It is a calling to reach the cities of the world, to reach the peoples of the world. And I don't mean by that just evangelizing in the population centers, but from those centers, establishing beachheads and taking the message to the furthest reaches of the globe. That's the place we're in. And I would encourage you to recognize how significant that consideration is to you right now, tomorrow, and to the rest of your life. This is a labor today in this text to remind ourselves of who we are, of the story we're part of, of the place that we play, and of the significance of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is to shine through and pervade everything in our lives and to transform it. If you are separated from Christ, if you have not come to embrace Him in submission and trust in His death and resurrection, I plead with you as Peter does to know that there is salvation in no other name and to trust Him as your Savior. For those of us who have trusted that message, we are part of this glorious mission. And we labor amidst the raging nations. And that's where the city gets ugly. But we labor amidst the raging nations until we realize, Psalm 2, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Until we realize, Zechariah 14, and the feet of Christ stand on the Mount of Olives, which is split in half so that the river of life can flow each direction from that city for the salvation of the world to come. We labor with hope for that city. And when we see it, there will be no beauty on earth to compare. No beauty you've ever seen in a wilderness untouched by human hands. No beauty you have ever seen in the face of an infant child. No beauty you've ever known in family or prosperity or health or strength or the beauties that flow from this world. Nothing will compare to that. Where the city lands and the Savior reigns. And its name is the Lord is here with His people on His hill for eternity. That will be the ultimate beauty. We're laboring, we're working to that end by God's grace. And may we support each other in that labor. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise You for the conviction of this passage as we see the boldness of these followers. We are reminded of the suffering of the church and those who suffer such heartaches and trials because of their stand for Christ. We're reminded of the exclusivity of Jesus' claim. 
we are reminded of so much that is vital to us here, and I pray that we would deepen in our walk in the roots that we put down in the gospel. Draw to yourself those who know not Christ and be pleased with the way that we respond in our small groups, in our families, in our own minds this day to what you have revealed in your truth here. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.